This episode of Into the Boundary is powered by Thomas Financial Group. If you enjoy our episodes, make sure you like and subscribe to our YouTube channel for more exclusive content. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. How you doing? This Wanya Green. Hey, what's up? Um, I'm Keisha Hampton. Yo, what's going on, folks? It's your boy Abdul Rahim Laquan or Senior. I'm Dennis Shaw. I just did Into the Boundary with Lou Mobley. Want to thank you for giving me the chance to come up here on this platform and tell my story. Hey, man, if you're an athlete and you're looking to get your word out, looking to get your story out. I'm up here with Lou Mobley. He's, he's doing good things over here. Get up here and get with my guy, Lou Mobley. Ah. Welcome to Into the Boundary, the podcast with no boundaries, where sports meet real life. I am your host, Lou Mobley. And today, we are joined by our first team all-tribe volley defensive back, two-time conference champion, Matt champion at Del Val, PSAT champion at IUP. As a coach, NEC conference champion in footballing and cross country at St. Francis University, competed in the American Open Series for U.S. weightlifting and won a bronze medal. And now, the head strength and conditioning coach at Shippensburg University, Dennis Cursor. Is it Lou Mob or Lou Mob? Oh, I'm good, man. How you doing? You know, just living life. Just living life. Doing, yeah, just doing, doing what I need to do. Yeah, man. Like they say, man, everyday struggles, I guess, right? Right, right. No, but uh, let's just catch up, man. It's been a while, man. A lot of things changed. You know, how, how's the family life, man? Yeah, that's good, man. Like, I mean... Got married. I've been married now since uh, May 5th of 2017. So uh, two years, uh, just a couple months ago, we had a two-year anniversary. And uh, we have a 14-month-old son. I mean, family's good. It's uh, it's something that's always, like, it's, 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 I think it's cliche to say, but it's my why. Like, my wife and my son are what drive me to do everything that I do. And uh, so my family is, is a big, big part of my life and family's good we're we're talking about having a second but it's more like my wife is talking <laughs> about having a second and I'm like don't be break just slightly just give me give me a little bit of time but I mean I know I want a second at some point it's just when and it's just the timing of it and 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 when we had our son like it was it wasn't unplanned but it also wasn't like we were actually trying it was just like after we got married we stopped not tr- or we stopped trying to not have a baby if that mm-hmm. makes sense and uh we were married for a month and boom there oh, it was wow. yeah yeah i was just like oh okay <laughs> i guess i guess we're not gonna have any like just travel whatever the case may be but regardless i mean my son's a blessing i love him uh and uh so now that we're talking about baby number two Trying to think about planning it is is now more of a. Do a, things ever go as planned? Never, never. <laughs> I mean, case in point, our first son like was it was completely unplanned. Like the only thing that we did was was we stopped trying to not get pregnant at that point because we were married, and uh, and that was something we both agreed upon is that we wanted to have kids, and we just got one. Immediately, <laughs> just just as a as a young man, you know, I'm not I'm not married yet. I'm, I aspire to be right. married. You know, how did you know? You know, she was the one, and like that she was the one that she wanted to be with forever. Um, there is there was like there was a point in time in our relationship when I saw. So we we met 
at school, we worked on IUP. Um, and we met at school, and it honestly just started out like just as a fling, really. Like she started following me on on Instagram and Twitter on back to back days. I'm like, all right, this girl started following me back to back days. Let me let me see what she's all about. So like I go through, I'm scrolling through Instagram or whatever, and I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll DM her, you know. I'm I'm one for one on DMs. I've only ever DM'd one girl in my entire life and I'm married to her. I'm good. I'm 100%. I'm, that's it. But um, started hanging out. Uh, we started hanging out like at like bars and stuff first. And then she started coming over, hanging out, meet my friends, yada, yada. And then she really started like really making the effort to like show me that she wanted to be something more. And in those moments, it was like, I enjoyed what I was receiving. Yeah. Selfishly, I guess you can think you can think about it like in a selfish way, but like I enjoyed like and I enjoyed having her around. Like it was it was pleasing to me to have her around. And I don't know. I don't know if there was like an exact like this is when it happened. It was just every time she was around, I was like, I really I'm happy with this. I can do this for a long time. Like I don't want you to leave. I don't want you to because she was living back home while I was still uh, living at IUP, and she would come visit all the time. Like. Not like on this needy type of thing, but like I don't want you to go. Like I, I like oh. if you if you have to go back to work, I'm cool with you living here. Like you're good. Like you know what I'm saying. But she obviously had to go make some money over the summertime. And yeah, I don't know if there was like an exact moment, but it was more like it was more just like I wanted to. I wanted her to be around. I wanted to be around her. And then we uh, after she graduated, she graduated a year after me. Um, we moved in together, and I think living together was where it really, like, solidified it. Like, we moved in together, and we did well together. Like, we complimented each other um, in terms of, like, things that we both like to do. Like, I love cooking. She she can cook, but, like, she's a recipe cooker. I'm more of, like, freehand, like, by taste, that type of thing. But, like, but she's a cleaner, and... I can be better in that front, I guess you can say. Yeah. Um, and it's just we complement each other well. We live, we, we we coexisted well, and I thought that was extremely important. I was guess. there any time when y'all like you know maybe like bump heads or the things y'all might argue about? I mean, we argue all the time, and that's only because <laughs> she's stubborn and I'm stubborn. So like we bump heads on things all the time, but there's only we've only ever had one true significant fight in our in our entire relationship. We've been together since uh 2014 we've been dating since 2014 married in 2017 and we've only gotten in one one fight where like it was a serious like something like that i would consider a big fight other than that i mean we bump heads all the time but it's it's we know that it's just bumping heads it never goes more than just bumping heads and one of us knows who's wrong most of the time it's it's me and I have a hard time admitting when I'm wrong, but I get it. Happy wife, happy life. Admit when you're wrong, even though you're not, because you're still wrong. <laughs> admitting when you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, you know, talk a little bit about fatherhood, you know, you know, what some of the joys you might get out of that and you know, how did that change your life? So I'll be hundred percent honest. I tell my wife I told my wife this before. When we first had our son, I she had this immediate bond. 
immediate bond. And it's and it's I mean, obviously, right? It's obvious why you have an immediate bond because she grew this this being in her belly, right? And there's a bond. I didn't have this immediate bond. Like I loved them, I took care of them, da da da. But I didn't feel this like sense of of connection until he started really like developing like a personality. Like after he was like five, six months years old, like and started he started reacting to things that I was doing. That's when I was just like, oh, being a dad is about to be fun. Yeah. And now, like, now it's crazy. Right now, like I said, he's fourteen months old. Um, it'll be fifteen months, I guess, at the end of this month. And uh, he's like imitating everything I do. Like I have to start like watching what I do mm-hmm. because he starts imitating everything. Just the other day, I, there was a mosquito flying around, and I wasn't blessed with enormous height, so I'm jumping <laughs> to try to kill this mosquito. And I'm jumping, jumping. I can't get this mosquito. It keeps flying away from. Uh, I have like a little piece of like tissue paper in my hand. Jumping up, jumping up, and. He's in behind me, cracking up that like that deep belly baby laugh, just yeah. dying behind me. And then all of a sudden, I get I get the mosquito and I start walking away. He walks over to exactly where I was, he squats down and like he doesn't jump, he doesn't leave the ground, but like he acts like he's jumping. And I'm like, okay, all right, I'm developing an athlete right now. Fifteen months for start your training right now, but uh, <laughs> like little stuff like that. I taught him how to flex, like so. He'll walk around the house, and the funniest moment was over this past weekend. My in-laws were watching him, and my father-in-law was walking around without his shirt on in the house. And we get a text message about this, and so whenever we do our flexing thing, I usually like he'll have his shirt off, I'll have my shirt off, so he recognizes that. My father-in-law walks around the corner, and my son sees him. He's like, <laughs> to, to his grandfather. And they they also like my 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 in laws both start dying laughing and like they text my wife that and then my wife shows me that and I was just like it was one of those moments I'm like that's my boy mm-hmm. that, that's proud moments right right but no being a father is awesome it's uh it's it's taught me more that I don't necessarily like it, it's probably taught me so much that I haven't recognized yet mm-hmm. like there's gonna be a time later in my life when I look back on something and I'm be like. Cause I, I'm not a very patient person at, at all. Right. And, it, but there has to be so much patience that like, even if you're not a patient person, you have to be patient with, with, with your child, with, with children in general, because they don't, they're not, they're not a 15, 16 year old kid who understands and comprehends everything you're talking to them about. It's a, it's an infant that this is the first time they're experiencing this or first time they've ever heard this or first time. And like it, as corny as it is, I'll, I'll look at my son sometimes. Like or I'll be driving, I look in the rear view, and he'll be just like looking into like what's going on outside. And I'm like, it, it's amazing to like think that that might be the first time he's ever seen whatever he's seen. Right. And like we take a lot of these things for granted. So like like I said, like there's gonna be a time later in my life that I look back and I'm like, being a father taught me that. Right now, I might not recognize it yet, but being a father, like I know there's going to be a moment in my life some sometime down the road, maybe next year, maybe 10 years from now, that I'd be like, the only way I would have felt, like known this, whatever this thing is, is because I was a father. And uh, I'm looking forward to those moments. I'm looking forward to watching my son grow up. I'm looking forward to, to him being successful in whatever he deems success in. 
I don't have any rules. Me and my wife have talked about it. I don't want him to play sports if he doesn't want to play. I'm going to give him the opportunity to play sports. I'm going to I'm going to say, hey, if you want to do this, you're going to do it. Same thing my parents had for me was, was as long as you're going to do it, don't quit. You're not allowed to quit. If you're going to do it, finish that year. You don't ever want to do it again. That's fine. But um, but if he wants to, if he wants to, to be a a on the Geek Squad, like the what's it called, uh, Best Buy Geek Squad, like he all about computers, whatever the case may be, cool, do it. If you love what you do, that's the only thing I care about. You know, I talk to more and more guys. You know, they have you know children, and a lot of people say like, I, I wish my son never pick up a ball. I wish he never does this, or you know, pretty much how you say like, you know, they they could be interested and do whatever they want. You know, why do you think so many people in our generation feel like that about their children? I think, I think it's one. I think it's a a, a safety thing. Like I know football nowadays, concussions are are so prevalent, right? right. And and you don't want to see that the CTE, the second impact syndrome, all of these things happen to your to your own blood. But um, I think nowadays. People are seeing like success in different views. So while we viewed being successful because we were athletes as being, we might have viewed being successful as, as playing college football, as as playing in the pros, like that was our success growing up, right? Right. Um, but nowadays, like success is is just mental health is so high, like in, in everyone's radar right now. So like success is, is whatever, whatever makes somebody happy. And I think, I think that's really where it comes from because you could be amazing at sports. You could be the most athletic person in the world, but if you don't love it every single day, one, you're putting yourself at a high chance of injury because you're not going to go into it hundred percent every single time. And two, you're going to hate what you do. And, and you're going to hate the fact that, that even though you have this amazing God given athletic ability, you don't want to do that. Like you might want to pick up a guitar and just play the guitar and, and go and just travel the world being this 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 uh this traveling guitarist that just wants to play bars all over the world. Like and if that's what makes you happy, that's now I think being viewed as the, the most important thing. Like it's no longer you're no longer stereotyped and, and, and stigmatized into into one slot. And that's funny because that's how I feel about, you know, um you know, I don't want to say we were forced to go to college or, mm. you know, before I put, was an athlete, I, I knew I was going to college, right? Right. But it was put in my mind that, you know, third grade, second grade, you know, that's what, you know, successful people do. They go to college. And now you have all these people who are entrepreneurs or, you know, their own properties and they have like these quality, quality lives, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it wasn't all from going to school, studying books and stuff like that. So that's how I feel as a parent is that, you know, just turn over every rock and see what's best for you. You right. have options. You know, I'm not going to force student loan debt on you <laughs> right. to death, you right. know, right. just because I have it, you right. know. But that's how I feel is this, you know, we've been talking a lot about that, just competing with the person in the mirror instead of, you know, comparing and contrasting, like you said, mental health. You know, people like, people actually have a hard time, you know, their peers are doing things that they're not doing and they're depressed about it and, you know, just compete with yourself. Whatever you see is successful. And being successful as a stay-at-home mom, and that makes you happy just to raise your kids, and they, they turn out successful, and that's your, your level of success. That's it. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I used to have this thing about me, like, you know, why didn't, you know, why nurses don't want to become doctors? And why doctors don't want to become, if they see Pong one as success, mm-hmm. they may not want to ever chase Pong two. Right. You know, so that's, that's just, I had to mature to that because I didn't get there at 22 years old. I still think I struggle with that sometimes. Like, I truly think I do. So I think, I think, I've heard this all over the place, but social media has created more, not depression. I don't want to say depression because depression itself is its own disease that, that people suffer from, but has created a void in people's lives in terms of um, like all you see is the best things. Like when somebody's posting something, they're posting them at the beach. They're posting them uh, graduating with their master's, graduating with their doctorate. They're posting for their best life, right? Like no one really posts, like you don't see the fact that this person who, who got their master's had to work seven jobs just to get that master's. You saw, all you see is the end result. And so like myself, Sometimes I struggle with it because um, I'm the head strength coach at a D3 school and I love my kids. I love what I do. But when I first started being a strength coach, the, the dream was the Power Five Conference. Like, I'm going to be a head strength coach in the Power Five. Like, that's what I'm going to do. I, I mean, and, and that is success. That's the, that's the highest form of success right there. And now... I had to, like you said, mature to it and, and, and adjust my frame a little bit to realize that I'm doing something that I love every single day. It doesn't matter if it's a Division One level, Division Two level, Division Three level, or NAIA. It, I'm doing something that I love to do. I'm, I'm, I'm morphing young athletes into a better version of themselves athletically and hopefully in life as a person. And um, that it's... It's that moment that I have to focus on. And then being at the Division three level affords me opportunities to see my family. At the Division one level, like, if you're in a season, football, yeah, right. You're there all day, every day, working, making sure everything is top-notch because from, from the beginning of the summer all the way into the national championship. Now, in the spring, you might be able to do more things, but once spring ball starts, it's like – it's so it's a more than a full-time job at those levels and, and adjusting my frame a little bit, adjusting my angle. I've, I've, I've been able to, to see what I'm doing in a, in a, in a greater light, I guess you could say. But I mean, there's still moments that I'm like, man, like, am I, am I ever going to get an opportunity to, to be the head guy at like a power five school or, or a big division or a, uh, a, an FCS school or FBS school, whatever the case may be. Maybe, maybe not, but success for me right now is I love what I do. Just like I said, like, I don't care what my son does as long as he loves what he does. I love what I do, and it's it's the job that I said I wanted. I'm a big person. I big believe in manifesting your own destiny and putting things in the universe, and what I always put in the universe is or what, what I used to do, which we can talk about, is I want to be a head strength coach. I want head strength coach, head strength coach. I never put a title to Division one, division two, this school, that school, whatever the case may be. Um, so I think I think maturing to the fact that that not everything's not everything you see on social media platforms, while they are amazing for connection, networking, all these things, 
not everything you see in there is the whole picture. It is a snippet, a, a snippet of the best moment of that person's life that might have taken so many years of struggle, downfall, all these things to get to this moment. You, but you don't know what what led to that point. Um, that's so that's so deep, and I feel like just listening to you, this is how like you're saying everything that I feel, right? So the other night, I, I recently just started like just Ubering at nighttime. My son's birthday's coming up. I'm Ubering around, just trying to make some extra money for his mm-hmm. birthday. You know, might buy a moon bounce or something that he probably won't remember, but it was there. <laughs> right, right, right. There's a picture of it. It was there. It was there. So I was right. Ubering the other night, and um, I picked up a couple from the airport. Um, Philadelphia airport, and I dropped them all the way to like Willow Grove, like 40 minutes away, 50 minutes away. So we had a long ride, and you know, the husband and wife. And the husband, I believe, was like some type of um, IT guy, right? But he didn't go to school for anything computer science related. Actually, I don't even know if he finished school. The young lady, I believe, was a psychiatrist or something like that, but maybe for the elderly or something like that. And we got into the same type of conversation of nobody sees all the work you put in. And she's sitting here saying, you know, I make six figures and stuff now. But nobody remembers that I was a, had a master's degree and I was a waitress still. And to me, when she said that, it relieved me of all the things I was feeling trying to get into my coaching career, trying to get into my athletic administrator career. It, it, it relieved me that everybody has that same grind. And like you said, because of social media, you don't see that everybody's having a hard time getting in or getting what they're worth or whatever salary they deem you know, appropriate. Mm-hmm. They certain, you know, that they're striving for to have a master's degree and to tell an Uber driver, right, that, hey, I used to be a waitress with a master's degree. Or I was, a, you know, I was a, I had a master's degree and I was still cleaning buildings at nighttime, you know, cleaning toilets. Mm-hmm. I just think it's extremely humbling, but it just shows that everybody's in that same boat. At some point. At some point. Right. Everybody's at that same point. As, as much as you want to think, People were just plugged into jobs. You know, his dad was the owner of the company. Put that, even if that happens, it happens a handful of time. The rest of America is in the same mm-hmm. boat we, we're in. Right, right. You know, and I just thought that was deep that you could even just speak to that, man. Um, just it, switch it. Go ahead. Like what, like, and to, to your point, I'm a head strength coach at a division school. I make a good salary. I still work a weekend job. Because I have greater aspirations for my family. I want to be able to take them on trips. I want to be able to get myself out of debt sooner. All of these things that that when I work my weekend job, it's a very fulfilling job. I love it. I work with, with uh, deaf and autistic uh, clients. And very fulfilling. But it's still a side job that has nothing to do with my main job. That has nothing to do with my degree and everything I went to school for. Everything I struggled for to make sure I had that degree. But to... To say that I'm a head strength coach and I still have a side job is is also humbling. Like to, yes. to be able to say, like I I I've reached a very successful part of my career. Is it is the story over? Absolutely not. But this success still has has its own downfalls in terms of this job doesn't give afford me the ability to to do all these things that I want to do with my family. So I still need to get some money elsewhere. I still need to do little things on the side to get money elsewhere. And um, and until that job manifests that that is the job that can do all these things, potentially a six-figure job, which some strength coaches have and they're blessed to have, but they've worked their tail off and they've networked so much 
to have those jobs, like it's humbling to be able to look back and say, I know, I know at some point, like I was saying earlier with my son, about being a father, I know at some point I'm gonna look back in my life and, and be like, all that struggle was for this. It was for this moment right here. Whenever that moment may be, it might be when my when my 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 son and, and my second child, whether it be my son or my daughter, grad both graduate school and, and now we're able to retire and do all these things, like whatever the case may be, I'll look back on these moments here where it was, it was all for this. It was all for this moment right here because I, I, I grinded when I when I could. And grind is one of those terms that a lot of people throw out, but but I grinded when I could because I'm young enough to, I can handle it. Me and my wife have, have the situation where where I can work on the weekends and do extra stuff. So I took every opportunity I could to better our lives when I could. So that way at some point in the, in the future, whether it's the near future, the far future, there's a moment where I can look back and be like, sweetheart, everything I did, remember, remember those hard nights, remember those times I was working on the weekend, remember the times I had four jobs while I was a grad student, while I was a GA, it was for this right here. You know what I mean? So I think that's, I think that's, but I think it's great that you had that moment where somebody who, who makes six figures now, it really, it relieves you. Like you're like, oh, there's still light at the end of this tunnel. Yeah. Like sometimes when you're looking ahead, that light starts to get dimmer and dimmer and smaller and smaller. And then like, she just blew that hole wide open again saying like, oh, there's still, there's still time. It definitely gave me life. Um, I've been, you know, just in another aspect, we're in a great conversation right now, just in another aspect of this, I think my biggest problem was a couple of years ago, and I'm free of this now. Like a lot of it's into the boundary, racing boundaries that I post. This is what I'm really feeling. I used to feel like, you know, you graduate college, you're supposed to be this salary. By this age, by this age, I'll be a homeowner. By mm-hmm. this age, I'll be seeing this part of the world. By this age, I'll be married. By this age, I have children. And I had all these timestamps, you know, just to be honest, mm-hmm. you know, and I had like a little bit of a frustration. I was always a good student. GPAs is always on point, and I just felt like, I, and I always worked hard at things, so I just was like frustrating myself, depressing myself a little bit, mm-hmm. um, just because things weren't happening like clockwork, but things weren't happening like clockwork for the, to the best of us, right? you know, and, and that moment in the Uber kind of like, you know, stamped that it was good that I had let that go, you know, you know, I have let it go probably for two years now, to be right. honest, you know, and, and all of a sudden, I'm a lot more, I can identify things as just blessings, and like you said, just or oh, I had this opportunity that led to this opportunity, or I knew this person that helped me get to this place and got this interview. Right. Um, and I was able to, you know, highlight them things, and them things mean a lot more to me now rather than, hey, man, I want to be the young guy, you know, all the older guys are driving these cars at 60. I want to drive them at 32. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's how I used to, that's how hard I was working in my head to have them things in half that time. Right. Which is insane. Right. But that was like my complex, mentally. Yeah. You know, but I'm like so free of that now. And I'm just so happy with regular things. I'm so happy. I come home, like you said, I'm finally working a job that I wanted to have. It's my dream job from grad school. I work my, I'm at that title. Like you said, I have the title. I'm a, a operations coordinator. Right. And I'm at the title where I want it. And I come home and the best part of the day, every day, no bull crap. Like if I can make my son laugh, like you said, full belly laugh, mm-hmm. he smile, he grabbed my face. We are sharing that moment. It's the best part of every day. Right. Every day. It could right. be like the worst day at work. It could be, you know, even even me and his mom having a bad day. That that right there, even if I ain't got ten dollars in my pocket. Right. You know, and if I come home and we sit here laughing and we're having interactions, it's all worth it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's all worth it, man. 
um, just diving back into it. This is this podcast really is about you and your life and your journey. Um, just tell me a little bit about growing up and your upbringing. So growing up, I grew up in a very, very, very small town. Um, like I graduated from Millersburg High School. Uh, it's about 30 minutes, 35 minutes north of Harrisburg, if you know where Harrisburg, Pennsylvania is. Um, and it uh, was small. I graduated with 76 people. Mm. Like, and that was a large class. So I knew everyone. Everyone knew me. We all knew something about somebody. Like, and it was a very like gossipy town. Like, picture, picture like, you know, the, the movie Friday Night Lights. Mm. So picture like how like football is like the, the heartbeat. You know what I mean? Like when we were playing, it's, I don't know. I don't know really know as much now, but like growing up, we always went. To, everybody always went to the football games on Friday night, and then. Uh, when we played, like the town was kind of dead because everybody's at the football game. Um, there was one, there was one game that we had um, that we had like at a small school. We had like two thousand people there, mm. and um, but that's like it was a big time game. And so, like growing up, it was I had my mom, and my dad, um, and my my sister. Uh, we lived in a, in a nice nice little neighborhood, um, like more farm rural type area. Like I had like three or four farms within like seeing distance of me. Um, we were not farmers ourselves, but like that was the type of town we grew up in. <clears throat> Real small town, like gossipy, like, you know, stereotypical small town. Um, and then uh, really, had, I mean, when I look back on it now in this moment, like there's really no issues. Like I, my, my biggest, my biggest problem growing up was my parents are both deaf. So I had to learn how to communicate differently with them and uh, and make sure that they uh, they understood me because there's obviously a different dynamic there in terms of, of English to, to to sign language and being able to converse and uh, so like the biggest problem for me was was I had to like field phone calls when I was really really young like big time phone calls, like talking about mortgages or whatever the case may be when I was like nine, 10 years old and translating to my parents because they, they really didn't have much translation back then. But looking back on it, like that's nothing compared to what some people go through. But that was my biggest struggle growing up. And oh, you just said you had to translate hearing a mortgage deal over the phone to like sound language. Think, things like that. Yeah, yeah. Sound like, language to your parents. Yeah. At nine? At nine, 10, like, we that's had this. Crazy. We had this conversation. Like, there was words that I had no idea what they meant. Oh my god! No idea how to spell them. Like things like that. And like, and um, it was it was something that made me kind of grow up a little quicker, a little quicker. Um, just because like I had to be responsible. I felt like I had to be responsible for my for my for my home. My dad, my dad worked at the same job. He's still there to this day. Um, he kind of lucked into it. Uh, not lucked into it, but when he first started at this job, he works for the Navy Depot. Um, so it's like a government job. He, they didn't have to have any type of degree when he first started there. Now you need a degree to be in there. You need certain type of, of clearances, whatever. But he kind of grandfathered into it because he'd been there for so long. Um, but, and then my mom was a stay-at-home mom. So like my mom babysat in the, in the summertime. Um, so like I always had, I always had friends over, that type of thing. But uh, yeah, that's, that, that was the area that I grew up in. Like we all had small towns, and all the small towns were rivals. Like that was just like what we did. We were all we all excuse me called up the valley, 
We all knew each other. We all knew what we were doing. Like, who is, who's who and this, that, and who's dating who and gossip, gossip, gossip. You'd walk into school some days and somebody would tell you something about yourself that you're like, huh? I was, I just hung out with her last night. Like, how did you guys all find, how does the whole school know about this? But like, that's the type of environment that I grew up in. It was great in some aspects and it was also awful in some aspects because you did one bad thing, the whole town knew about it. Everyone knew about it. And like, like people were like talking, like when you walk past, like, oh, yeah, this guy said this, this guy. Like, but then on the flip side of things, like you built relationships with people that were, that were family relationships that like your family knew this person's family. So like now you guys are friends and now you guys are friends for your life. Because I mean, you guys have kids. Like, it's a generational type of, of of relationship, friendship, that type of thing. So, yeah, that was like that was my upbringing. Um, no, I just want to ask you questions about you know I never knew that your, your parents were the yeah. Um, do you remember like like when you were young when you realized like you know they couldn't hear? I don't know. If, I, I don't know. I don't really remember a moment. It was just it was my whole. It was all. It was all I knew. Right. Like I learned sign language and I was able to communicate. Some in some way, shape, or form by not at nine months. Um, at nine months, yeah, I was a bit of a, a prodigy. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's crazy, but no, like I was able to sign certain things. Like, if I was hungry, I was able to sign that I was hungry, uh, milk, that type of thing. Like, I was able to do those things. And there's a lot of research now, actually, too, with sign language that like infants should be taught sign language because it helps them um, learn how to formulate sentences earlier because they can get ideas across. Um, and at a younger age where they're not able to verbalize it because they don't know how to speak yet, but they can say, I'm hungry. They can just say, I'm hungry, like whatever the case may be. So like in their head, they have formulated a thought and they've communicated that thought and that thought has been received. And now someone is, is returning whatever it is that you're trying to get out. But I don't know if I've ever, there was no moment that I was, um, that I was like, oh, this is the moment that, uh, I realized my parents were deaf. I know, like, when I was younger, I hated that my parents were deaf. Hated it. Because kids are kids are assholes. Yeah. Kids are assholes. They've always been, and they always will be. And they're assholes not because they're, they're, they're malicious. They're assholes just because they don't have a filter, and they don't care what they say. So, like, people would make fun of my parents because they would talk a little differently when they would verbalize things and... They, and um, and those types of things, and I hated it because, like, I used to get teased because my parents were deaf, whatever the case may be. Or, like, not really, I wasn't getting teased, but people would say something that would make me, like, infuriated. It's like, those are my parents. You're not going right. to just make fun of my parents. But um, but now, looking back on it, like, it's it's a blessing because, like, now I'm able to teach my son sign language and and uh, my wife sign language. And, like I said, my side job where I work with deaf and autistic, like, I had, I had that in before before anyone else because I already knew sign language. That was that was my first language was sign language. I had scholarships for English as a second language because it goes by what is your first language spoken in your household or the primary language spoken in your household so it helped me with student loans. Like there was points in later in life that it became a blessing to have to have deaf parents and not to say that oh thank God my parents were deaf, but where you look on that moment there's some shining lights in that moment. Well that's super deep. Um so what's your first introduction into sports? Uh, my parents were both athletes, so they both went to the uh, Pennsylvania School for the Deaf, which used to be in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, it has since closed, but my mom was track, 
field hockey and uh, she was a sprinter, field hockey and softball. My dad wrestled football and he was a thrower. Um, so sports were kind of always around. I always remember watching sports when I was growing up, watching football when I was, my dad was a big Eagles fan. My mom was a Cowboys fan. So that I knew that rivalry early. Yeah. Um, but growing up, uh, sports were always there. Um, I don't really, I think that probably the first introduction to sports was like probably most, like most kids, like just throwing a baseball with like your dad, like getting your first, getting your first mitt and, and throwing baseball learning how to throw a baseball. Uh, learning how to hit off a tee. Uh, I think that was my first organized sport that I played was t-ball. It was either that or soccer. I don't know which one came first. They're very like close, but um, my first introduction to sport was just like it was always in the household. It was always there. Right. So, but that was something that they pushed for you, like push. push no, you I don't think I don't remember them pushing me to do anything. It was it was it was kind of like how I view it. Like it, it's it was there. Like if you want to play it. Cool. Go ahead. Do it. You just can't quit. You don't have to go and do it the next year, but you're playing this whole year. We're paying X amount of dollars for you to be a part of this league. You're playing this league. You're doing it. You're finishing it. And then, and then if you don't ever, like I played, I think soccer, I think now that I think back correctly, soccer was my first sport. I was able to play that before football. I wanted to play football, but I was too young and soccer was my first sport. Played it. I hated it, but I did it just to play, just to do something. Then T-ball came around, and then the next year I was able to play football, and I played football at five. was my first the first time I played football. And I think that was the first sport that I, like, fell in love with. I love playing football. Um, what you love about the game? Back then, I liked to just hit people. Like, <laughs> I had a coach. I had a coach that, to this day, if I ever see him, um, he coached me peewees, ponies, and midgets. He was like, you might be – one of the only people that I know that just lays their body out. Like you don't care about your own well-being. You are going to put all of, at that time I was 60 pounds, like all 60 pounds is going to be put into somebody. Um, and because uh, I was always a smaller guy, like compared to my friends, I was always just the little guy, the runt, whatever the case may be. And uh, so like, I felt like I had to just do everything I could, but um I think that was like my first like. That's why I loved it. I love hitting people because I was always I played I played middle linebacker, as as like a sixty as a sixty pound little pipsqueak. I played middle linebacker. We ran like a four four stack, and so it was me two inside linebackers, two two outside linebackers. Both of us were middle linebackers, both inside linebackers. Me and my one of my real close friends now, and uh, we used to do this stupid. You remember Space Jam, right? Yeah. All right. So in Space Jam, when Donald Duck, uh, or not Donald Duck, Daffy Duck puts his helmet on, he spins his feet, say, it's gut check time. Mm-hmm. We used to do that before every play. we look at each other, be like, it's gut check time. And, and then go around <laughs> the play. But uh, I think I think I just fell in love with the hitting. Because like, we were able to hit. We had full pads back then. Like, it was before before all this other stuff came out about like playing flag first, just to understand the game, touch football, that type of thing. No, they put us in helmets, and we, we just started cracking. Mm. Yeah. So when did you say, you know, football became like something that you took seriously? Midgets, I think. Midgets, uh, um, which I forget what age group that was. It was like right before high school. Um, I think I started taking it seriously because I, I always have started, but like I started becoming like a good player then. Um, and 
the, I had the oddest, the oddest combination of, I was a two-way, two-way player. I had the oddest combination of, of positions. I was, and you won't believe this, but I was our starting, uh, right, or sorry, left guard and our corner. No way. Swear to God. Swear to God. And the only reason, I, I was told this by the coaches, the only reason that I was, I, they put me on the line was because I wasn't afraid to block somebody. I wasn't afraid to like just put everything I had into somebody. Like some of those other coaches said before, I just put my all into it. I blocked whatever I could. But yeah, I, put, I was number 46. I played uh, left guard and uh, corner. That was, the, that was the positions I played. It's the strangest, oddest combination of any player I think I've ever talked to in my entire Because if you play line, most likely you either play linebacker or defensive line. Right. Yeah. Like, not corner. And if you play corner, you're not playing. You're 100 not playing offensive line. Absolutely right. So, um, but yeah, I think that was that's when I first started taking it seriously, and uh, and then that led into like high school ball. Um, Where did you go to high school? Millersburg, Millersburg High School. Yeah. So, um, like I said, that small small town, but it was like all small towns that were like right along like this strip inside like the valley, but. So how did, how did, how did, you know, once you got to high school, like, how did freshman year go? Awful. We were 0-10. 0-10? Yeah, but there was a lot of us that played a lot as freshmen. We had, like, three seniors and, like, eight juniors, and the rest of us were freshmen and sophomores. And we, but our head coach at the time saw our class and the, and the sophomore class as, like, the, like where to build around mm-hmm. to give us the opportunity. My cousin... Uh, who doesn't look or anything like my cousin? He's he's six, probably like six two, and in high school I think he graduated like six two, like two fifteen, nothing like me at all. But yeah, he, uh, he played. He was our starting quarterback. He played running back all like all through, um, like Pee Wee's Ponies and Mitchell's always running back. But then we ran uh, in high school. We ran uh, triple option. Okay. Like the Navy Navy triple yeah. option and. Our head coach saw something in my cousin. He was our starting quarterback. I mean, for obvious reasons, he was athletic. He was always a running back. And when you run that triple option, you get the chance to hang on to the ball, keep it, do your thing. And uh, he saw something, and he put him in there as a freshman. He started He started every game, I think, after game three. It was week three or something like that. It was real early in the season. He didn't start the whole year, but – like week three, early in the season, from that point on to our senior year, he started every single game as quarterback, and he took licks our freshman and sophomore year. But uh, that was our freshman year was awful. But it was like building. It was us getting opportunities to run this offense because by the time we were juniors and seniors, it was like clockwork. We ran this offense so well that you you weren't stopping us at all. So what happened sophomore year? We went three and seven. Started to win a couple games, um, but still super young, super like small. Because like, I think high school is the biggest biggest tell of this. Like you have eighteen year old, seventeen, eighteen year old seniors versus 13, 14 year old boys that are freshmen and sophomores. I mean, just the physicality of it, you're gonna get beat all the time. And we still had only like eight seniors, so it like didn't really help that we had we had had no depth at all at the upper levels. We had all of our underclassmen where we had our depth. And so sophomore year, we were three and seven. 
um, won some games, learned how to win a little bit. Uh, and the games that we lost, like we weren't getting blown out like we like we did. Were you before. playing corner then? What were you playing? No, I actually. So this was where I took my first like most humbling moment. I went from starting both ways to I got some special teams time and I got rotated in a little bit here and there. Um, so you started both ways freshman year? No, no, I started both ways when I was when I was in midgets, right? Right. Expecting to be that guy, that guy. I'm I'm, I'm sorry, it's freshman year, and nope. I didn't. I got some special teams time my freshman year. I played corner, but like I rotated in here and there. Like it wasn't really, it really wasn't anything um, substantial. I got mostly just special teams time and like and, and JV time. Uh, but that was my and I played slot back. So in the in that spread option, there's a slot, um, a back. Some people some people call it. And uh, the sophomore year, same type of deal. Like. Thought I thought I had opportunities to, to to potentially play a little bit more, but the same type of deal happened. Uh, I really didn't get my first like high school start until my junior year. That was when I, that's when I first started. Was my junior year. What would you say kept you motivated through them years of not playing as a freshman as a sophomore? Um, I think I'm a determined person. I just think that's just that's kind of something that was instilled to me when I was when I was always the smallest one. Like I always had to work harder to to be there, and it kind of something that just always was there. Like I was always. I had this theory about like smaller athletes. Napoleon, Napoleon syndrome. No, <laughs> not not, not even that. That's 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 a whole nother dynamic. Right, right, right. I really truly believe like all the smaller guys, undersized guys, whatever you want to call them, they have the biggest heart, and the most fearless, most competitive. Mm-hmm. They play with the biggest chip on their shoulders. They make. You know, even if they're not big enough to make it to the pros or highest level in college, they probably like some of your best athletes, especially in sports that matter, what size matters like that. You know, whether it's basketball or football, something like that, where like being a certain height or something really mm-hmm. helps or hurts you, right? Mm-hmm. But it's guys, like, you know, like I watched, you know, my, my boy went to the temple, um, played in the Bernard Pierce era. Bernard Pierce is a big time running back mm-hmm. in the area, right? Right. Matt Brown. Runs the ball harder than Bernard Pierce to me. Okay. And I'm off as a lineman, you know, and Matt Brown's like 5'5. Five, five. I'm going to say a buck 80, buck 70. That might be a lot for his height. Right. But, and then he was from Baltimore. He had an attitude chip on the shoulder. Right, right. And he ran harder. Right. You know, he just, he, it was, but I could name so many athletes that are undersized, like even Nate Robinson in the NBA. Right. You know, blocking y'all mean shot dunking on guys. He just played different because of his height. One one that we played with, uh Don Maggio. Maggio. Maggio bowling ball. I've never seen no. anybody hit somebody harder than Maggio. Don Maggio. Hit one of our linemen in a drill at IUP and they like I don't know, they bust their lip or bust uh, you know, nose was bleeding. But he gave somebody a concussion. And he was yeah. a little short, undersized, fullback type. Yeah. And you know, and it's crazy because, like, as you know, you have big guys, like taller guys, bigger guys, and they don't have no heart. So in, in my head, you would be like, yo, I can put the heart of the little guy and the big guy, the big guy, but then God never make them like that. Right. You know, you yeah. have these people who are really, really big and they, they happy, you know, whatever they're happy with. They're right. not happy dominating or being physical or these things, you know. These small guys be having it. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, they be having right. it. Right. <laughs> right. No, no, I, uh, no, I think, I don't know. I don't know. It makes sense. Like I don't know if I've ever really like taken a step back and like looked at 
some of like the the guys you deem fearless, deem determined. Like, mm-hmm. But yeah, when you take a step back on it, like yes, most of the time they are like the smaller guy, and because because we weren't gifted with like my cousin, like my cousin six two two fifteen as a high, as a high school quarterback. That's that's a good size high school, Solid, yeah. especially for a running high school quarterback. Like he can take off, and he ran like a four seven. Like he he had some speed, he had some he had some like he could run people over, but he didn't work a lick in the weight room at all. But me, I stayed in the weight room, and I made sure I stayed in the weight room because I was five eight. I think I graduated a buck sixty soaking wet. Like I, there was, I had to be in the weight room. I had to work on me to make sure I was even going to get looked at because otherwise I wasn't even going to get that opportunity. But I think Matt Brown is like five, seven. I said five, five. I just want to, <laughs> <laughs> he might be like five, eight. I now, don't know. Now Dom, Dom might be like five, six. Maggio. These guys are short guys. Cause he's shorter. He's shorter than me. Like I'm only five, eight, five, nine with cleats on, standing on concrete. But that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> no, man. But that was my point about, you know, undersized guys. They always work hard. Yeah. You know, everybody that's, you know, big for their size, they have that Ruby Miles syndrome of, I just got to show up and play. Right. You know, right. I just got to show up and we're going to win. Yeah. You know, undersized guys, I got to beat somebody out. But, you know what I mean? It's a different, it calibrated differently. Right. It's, uh, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Like, I mean, just because they have to. They had like they had they had to work to to get to that point like the whole time they've always been undersized. If you're undersized by the time you get to high school, like chances are you've been undersized your whole like you've been a small guy your entire life. Like you didn't sprout up real quickly and then just stop growing. Right. But um, but yeah, so junior junior year came around and started uh started playing uh, corner and uh, started playing really well. Like got my groove. We uh, we ended up being twelve and one that year. We lost in the district championship game, undefeated. First time we were undefeated in in school history, uh, in like regular season, and we were spanking teams. Like we averaged like forty seven points a game, letting up only like 12, 12 points a game. Like spanking teams, and but that's because we took our licks mm-hmm. two years in a row. And now. We grew up a little bit. We matured a little bit. We built some size. Like we got, we grew up, matured physically and mentally, and we ran the same offense for two years without really winning any games. So now that we have the size and the speed and the dynamics that are essential for football, on top of running the same offense that we ran for two full years, it was it was we were clicking on all cylinders. Um, and then senior year, we went twelve and two. Same type of deal, not as much of a high-powered offense, more of like a grinded-out offense because mm-hmm. we didn't have – so my junior year, we had a receiver that was a big-time playmaker, a slot receiver, or a slot receiver that was a big-time playmaker, and then those opened the, opened the alleys for our quarterback to take off, for our, our H-back to take off, our B-back to take, take off. Some of these guys don't want to play college ball or anything like that? Most of them did, yeah. Uh, most of them played D3. Um, like our my cousin went to Albright. Um the B back ended up playing basketball, uh, division three. Um, yeah, every, everyone that they went, they at least went D three. The highest level of guys that I played with, one of my best friends, he played at Bucknell, so he played like FCS ball. Okay. Um, and then um, from there, and, and realistically, I hate to I hate to be that type of guy, but 
we really didn't get looked at. Like our school never got recruiting until like our junior year. Okay. And so like big schools didn't really know about us. And not to say all of us deserve to go to big schools, but there's some guys that could have went to like D2 level or, or one AA level athletically that just all of a sudden he just popped up on someone's radar at this small single A school. And you know, there's a stigmatism that comes with single A schools that you're not playing the highest caliber of uh, competition. competition, right? Whereas now, or like back then when we played, it was up to quad A, right? Mm-hmm. So like quad A schools, like your Woody Highs, like all of them schools, like you think, all right, these guys are playing top notch guys. NFL players come from the school. They have, they have college recruiters at everything they go to, right. everything they go to. But like we kind of just hit the map one year, and from there we started getting like Division three looks. But it was Division three looks and some D two looks because of at least just like locally. It was more like local schools, not like anyone outside the state or anything like that. It's funny because you know being from Philadelphia, we played. I played in the Philadelphia Catholic League. Right. And because of whatever reasons, we, you know, to my senior year, we didn't compete in states. But once, you know, Philadelphia schools, was, you know, um, Catholic schools in Philadelphia started being able to compete in states, you start hearing people going to Syracuse and University of Florida, Florida mm-hmm. State. Yeah. You know, it just like broke the doors down. Minnesota's in Philly. Because now they're playing competition across the state. There you go. And PA, PA would consider a top five state in, for football. Yeah. Uh, maybe back in the day, big. Back in those days, I mean, Woody High, I think, still has the most um, the most alumni that played in the NFL across like across. The what, years. Are, what would you say were some of the other big states? I mean, obviously, obviously, football or Florida, Texas, California. Like those are arguably top three. What about Ohio? I think Ohio had Ohio, Maryland, and Jersey, and us are kind of in a constant battle. Depending on years, okay. Um, and but I think when you think if you think top ten, you're thinking Florida, you're thinking Texas, you're thinking California, you're thinking uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Ohio, and Maryland. And then from there, the next three could be could be anyone depending on years. I mean, you got to think some some kids are going to come out of out of those midwestern states like Oklahoma, Iowa, that type of stuff. But I mean. The Carolinas, they're in there too. Like when you get down south, Georgia, yeah, I think Georgia, Tennessee, like those, those down south boys, like that's, it, it's a different type of football down there. Right. Like when I met, when I've worked with athletes that have come from those areas, they're a different breed, and because they play football all year round, flag whatever the case may be, because they have the weather to do so, and speed is in Florida, speed is in California. Like guys that I've met that came from those those southern states are guys that are always fast. I don't care who you are. You're always fast. You I think they always stereotype football, you know, like, like for example, like the Big Ten is supposed to be like the strength, you know, your mm-hmm. linemen, your, your power eye, power yeah. eye, running yeah. game. Yeah. And then you say like the SEC is the speed, you know, your horizontal guys, you know, mm-hmm. the vertical threats, you know. Pac-10, same type of thing, vertical threats. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, th- I think, yeah, because then like ACC kind of falls. Call, like, like, yeah. Yeah. Because it has mixture, mixture, yeah, yeah, mixture of both. Um, I think, I think realistically, SEC is turning into like that power because like, you think of big boys like Alabama, the yeah. top school, right? You think those are big boys, big hefty down south farm bred <laughs> boys that 
look like grown men at 18. Yeah. And they will line up and run it down your throat. Nick Saban doesn't do really anything crazy. He just builds a great team and does fundamental football. Just a random question because we just really potting right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like uh, college basketball, you know, they have the one and done rule. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it doesn't exist for college football? Uh, I think it's maturity, 100%. I think. Like bodily maturity or like yes. just maturity in general? Uh, I think both, but more physically. Physical maturity. Um, like we say grown men. Like I just said grown men at 18. But put that 18 year old against against somebody who's been in the league, like a Ray Lewis. Could you imagine an 18 year old going against Ray Lewis? Ray Lewis would eat him for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and pull a little bit more out for snacks. Like it and it's just because they haven't seen that type of speed, that type of 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 aggression, that type of, of strength that these that these players that at least done a couple years in a college program under a college strength coach and, and going against guys day in and day out that have similar speeds. You're no longer a big fish in a small pond or medium sized pond. Now you're a you're one of one of many. Right. You are a regular fish because most of the guys aren't the guy that's gonna be the first round draft pick. Not everyone's Saquon Barkley. Right. Right. And but so you have seven more rounds of guys that all are literally a, a millisecond away from being a third-round pick or a fourth-round pick. So you're basically the same athlete. So you haven't seen that until you got to college and played at that high level the entire single time, the entire time. So if you take a high school athlete and think that they can that they can go into um, or even like a, a freshman college football player mm-hmm. who hasn't had the opportunity to really develop his body and develop his game. And try to put him into the NFL, I think it's I think it'd be a recipe for de- disaster. No, I, I agree. I just wanted to hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I think the NBA though it works because the physicality is more athleticism, not necessarily aggression, not necessarily um, the speed of the game. Because basketball, I think, translates at a high level, no matter where you're at. Like if you play at like a Catholic a Philly Catholic school basketball in high school, mm-hmm. you're playing some of the best high school guys in the nation. Right. It's it's top notch regardless. A lot of those guys are going to go to the same schools that you play against in conference when you go to college. Right. And then those guys end up being lottery right. picks the next mm-hmm. year. So the differences aren't as drastic. Whereas with football, I think the differences are much more drastic from from playing high school football to playing. Do I think there might be some guys that could do that? Sure. I think there could be some guys that could go straight from high school and play. But I don't know. You don't think so at all? No. No. And and, and the only reason I say that is because, all right, so, like, you know, you have your constant sports. Like, uh, soccer is constant. The ball is live. Mm-hmm. It's a constant game. Basketball, the same way. The ball is live. Up and down, it's constant. Football is a little bit more military, a little bit organized, and coaching really matters to me in football, right? Because you're executing something that you were coached, right? Whereas though basketball, at the end of the day, is block a shot, get a bucket, 
you know, right. like soccer, kick a ball, get in the net, block it. But right. I mean, it's it's constant at the at the. There point. is coaching, but it's it's more free free than than football. Is. All right. So so with that being said, it would have to for a guy to be able to translate from high school or one year player in college. Hopefully, he starts because a lot of us don't start. Right. A lot, that's another thing. People, you know, freshmen come in college and they start. You know what I mean? But you know, but in football, they get like you said, redshirted. They get redshirted. They sit behind people. Waiting in football is more prevalent to me than waiting in basketball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. <laughs> you, yeah. you, know, right. you know what I mean? You're right. But, you know, and then you, like you said, you come from single A school. It's a single A coaching and competition. The same at four ray. You know, a lot of them things matter to right. me. Even when you go to college, like you know, um, we play the Division two level. PSAC is like quality D two football, like right. high it's, quality. It's, no, it's known across the nation as good football. Yeah. You know, it's like the big. I think I I simulate PSAC <laughs> with the Big Ten. Yeah. I think I think because it's more. While I think the game has expanded and it's more of a, a spread game, mm-hmm. I think traditionally the PSAC is line up, power eye, we're gonna run the ball. I mean that's how we played whenever we were at. We had Tuck and uh, James uh, Johnson. James or... Johnson and uh, he wasn't there for you. Rocket. Rocket became right after you. Mm-hmm. Guys that could put their head down. And line up behind Dalmaggio. Dalmaggio clears the way after everyone separate. He he clears the second level guy. They're off. They're off the races running north and south. But but yeah, what we were saying, like we played PSAC high level. Yeah. So you know, competition and all that matters. And I think, like, I don't know. If this is the same thing in like most sports. It's probably is, but only because I only played football. You mm-hmm. know, and I did some throwing the track, but. In football, you first couple plays, you filling each other out. Like, you know, how strong is he? How can I run by him? You know, you're doing a lot of that. You're going to need that transition in football a lot more than you would need that, like I said, in basketball. Right. You know, and that's just my opinion. You know, mm-hmm. in basketball, at the end of the day, you may not be as athletic as somebody, but you can sit in the corner and be effective shooting threes. Right. You transition well. Right. You know, or, right. or you may not score and you do exceptional defense on somebody right. that does score well. You transition well. If you didn't know, that's how a lot of these draft picks are. They're extremely, in basketball, extremely athletic. They come in as defenders, Kawhi Leonard, i.e. Kawhi Leonard. Great defense, athletic. I don't know where bunch of years down the line, he adds the offensive game that matches the defense game, superstar. Top three player in the NBA. Right. NBA champion. Right. Transition is smoother. Expectations help with that. Right. That he was only expected to do defense first. Right. Yeah, because he was, he was coming in on his first who had Tim Duncan, <laughs> who had Mono Ginobili, who had Tony Parker. Scores. Right. All scores. He had a role to play mm-hmm. on that team. So that makes sense. Yeah. But that but the expectation helps. You know, hey, if you can limit a guy that gets 30 a night to 22, 20, you did your job tonight. Right. Or if he did get 30, make him take 30 shots to get 30. Right. You know, that that was his measuring stick of success. Mm-hmm. You know, fast forward, him being determined, I want to take my game to the next level. He adds the offense to that defense. Mm-hmm. Look at it. Now he's a now he's a NBA champion. Go down for that. But but as the leader of the team, not a role not player. A role player. He carried the team for a season. You know, right. it's just different. But I just don't think there's no equivalent to that in football. No, I mean, yeah, that like that's very yeah, that's interesting because I think I think you're right. If if there is any any player that could go high school, it's like one percent of one percent. Yeah. Like it is a literally a handful of guys across the entire spectrum of high school football players that might be able to go into the NFL and be a 
special teams player, feel the game out a little bit, but realistically, everyone needs that time to sit down. Because tr- truly, not a lot of high school systems translate to the to NFL. Yep. So college systems, a lot of college systems now are a pro-style system. So uh, like when I was at Temple, I was there with Coach Collins. Coach Collins prided himself on getting guys NFL ready. If you play for my system, you will understand the intricacies at an NFL level. So that way, when you get to the NFL, if you are if you're blessed enough to get there, the learning curve is not as steep. Now you take a less of a learning curve, and now you just learn the intricacies of how we're going to do it for this team. That's crazy. My buddy could be in there play that temple. Just to reference him again, he committed to West Virginia. I don't, he's a defense end. Okay. Like a true defense end. Like a like a. 6'3", 6'4", 280-pound defense. He committed to West Virginia, decommitted the same day. The Temple, and one of the reasons other than being from Philly going six hours of West V or seven hours, whatever it is, it was that they ran at 3-3-5. And it was like, yo, they don't play even play. They don't even play a pro defense. And when they said that to him, it blew his mind. Like, oh, my God, how am I going to get to the NFL and we don't even play a pro defense? Right. And it scared him totally away. But when you think about it, I would love to know the numbers on, you know, like TCU runs a four two five. That's not really a pro defense. It's really a nickel in a pro. Right. It's a it's a variation of a defense. Right. right. It's a package. It's a package. Right. I wonder how well some of their defenders translate, translate. to the pros, or how yeah. often they're drafted, or how often they're picked up, or they just picked up to be nickels, or right. You know, like that makes sense. I, I'm very interested in the numbers. I don't know who's out there going to ever do this. I'm sure people do. Yeah. Because now sports science is at an all-time high. People analyze everything. There is somebody I guarantee that ha- is keeping stats on that. If you dug deep enough, I'm sure you could find it. I really think so because like sports science has gotten to a level where it's like sports science is primarily performance based, but like analytics, like there's some people that under understand analytics so well that's that's why they're an assistant coach. That they know what the tendency is in this exact moment of a game. So now so now hey, here's the tendency, yada yada yada. Tell my defensive coordinator, he knows, so now he makes he makes a call based on the tendency. Because they they're a, at this at this point in the game, they they're fifty three percent run at, at with like like and it's just it's crazy. Like, no, no, I've been a part of staffs like that. And they'd be like, they'd be, think, they'd be saying stuff like this. It'd be like, <clears throat> when I was coaching high school ball, oh, second and medium, you take a speed sweep, coach, you take a speed sweep. Like, you know, that's, a, that's right. how they're yelling it on defense. You right. take a speed, you know what I mean? Uh, third and short, you take a play action, we take a fake, a fake run, you know what I mean? You right. think, you're thinking all these things. And it's like, like somebody is in their bag and they coach in bag. Yeah. Like, it's crazy. And there's some guys that, like, when I was, when I was at Temple, I would hear it that, they would even know, like, down to the play, the type of play that they were going to run, the formation, everything. Like, that was why Ray Lewis, credit, like, credited himself on, like, why he was able to be so good for so long is he knew what the players were going to – what the, what the play was going to be based on the situation. And he – there's video of him calling out, literally saying, like, the, uh, dive right here, dive right here. Boom, he hits the hole right there. He stops it right dead, dead in the water. Is he wrong sometimes? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's they practice too. but <laughs> They practice too. That's a good point. <laughs> but but he knew the tendencies of the game so well that to, to like bring it full circle, 
that a high school player is not going to know how to do that in the pros at all. Because it's yeah, because high school the way the way you play high school is sometimes it's you have a great class full of athletes, somebody that can really throw the ball, two tall, lanky, take to the top receivers, throw it. Drop back, five step drop, seven step drop, whatever the case may be, shotgun, spread, throw it. Just get it up there. He'll go up, he'll grab it. Because we know that eight times out of ten, he's gonna win that that head to head battle. Well, speaking about lanky receivers, right? So when when you offer say you say I'm Penn State and I offer a receiver, a six four receiver scholarship. When I go to recruit this twelfth grader, he's gonna probably look lanky. Mm-hmm. He's not gonna look like he had any muscle mass to him. He's right. gonna look scrawny. He's not gonna look ripped. And he's not gonna look but so big. He's gonna look like what he looked like. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, you know what that means. Like right. he's gonna look like he just started playing football last year. That's and how I've never seen the weight room. Never seen the weight room. I think that those years of going to college are important. Oh yeah. You know, because now when it's time for he's a senior or junior, he's coming out. He looked different. Mm-hmm. But you know what? The co- the coach is recruiting that report card and that SAT score and that six four frame and maybe four of them highlights on that tape. Right. That's what the coach is recruiting. Right. You know. And when you get there, when you get there, now that's when the magic really happens. Development. Development really happens. Right. You know, they hopefully develop you mentally to understand multiple positions and can play, understand the playbook. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of you know running routes. They got option routes and all this formal right. stuff now. There's a lot of detailed RPOs stuff. And, yeah. It's right. Very intricate. You know, and then you hopefully get that physical part because you need that show. Oh, yeah. You know, all that skinny scrawny. I can't send you on slants if you're scrawny. No, because you're going to meet you're gonna meet a a 240-pound inside linebacker that's going to turn and smack you right in the face mask, and you're probably not going to play football ever again. Good, man. So, like, and it gets looked totally different at the combine. Yeah. You know, a kid running at a, I don't know if they have like rifle kits and stuff like that. You know, the yeah. combines we used to have when we was in like high school. I don't know if they have those anymore, but a kid at 17 doing those look totally different than an NFL combine. Oh, yeah. Physique wise. If you take a generic position like receiver, guys look like trophies. They look like they've been somewhere. Right. You know, they look, you know, they look like adults physically. Yeah. You know, instead of like, yeah. oh yeah, you're recruit, you're offering my 17 year old six four son. I know he's six four, but he's still 17 year old. Right. You don't feel like that about that same six four. Now he's too 20 to match that. Yeah, 22 years old and <laughs> or 20, uh, 20 years old, and now is 220 and not this scrawny lanky kid. Now, if somebody tries to press him at the line, he can mm-hmm. shed, get off, and no problem because he has now the the, the physical attributes. Look wise and strength wise to match his athleticism on the on uh, and his frame if he fits his frame better. So just I mean, but the, but I mean you could probably attribute to this that like some guys are recruited just because of their frame. Just because of their frame. Because I mean you can't coach six seven. Yeah. You like that's that's God given. He was six seven. You're telling me you're telling me that when you were coaching one of your recruits. Six seven, okay feet, okay hands, but had a good backside to him. Mm-hmm. Three forty six seven at, at eighteen. You can't tell me you are going to bring him in and try and try and try because because he has the ability. Like he's shown he's shown sparks glimpses. Yeah, yeah of of being able to handle it. 
Now we develop him for one or two years. We don't got to worry about his size. We just got to make sure he understands our offense, understands how to do it, and understand how to move his feet properly, keep his hands in check. Now we develop somebody who could potentially play in the pros. You know, you, it's, it's, sorry, it sucks to say this, but you become a coach's project. Yeah. In, in regards to that, you know, because the coach is sitting there like, if he ever puts this all together, oh, my God, he's going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. That's what you are. You know, you're, you're that for a lot of coaches that, that you know, the measurables or whatever that right. you want to do. You know, it's basically a guy that's like maybe one or two steps from being amazing. You know, right. he's, he's missing a couple parts of his game. Hey, he needs to be a little stronger. He needs to shut his baby fat. He needs to. Right. It's, it's always a little something. He needs to work on his speed a little bit. Hand and eye. He's like one or, two, yeah. one or two boxes checked off. And, and that's it. And that's and, it. And he's good. But like you said, a lot of it has to do with him already having the measurables that size, mm-hmm. height in particular, because, you know, weight go, come and go. But height in particular, you can't coach it. Yeah, you know, you can you can wish for it every day. You may not grow, <laughs> right? And the, and and the, I mean, especially with O line and D line. Like, I've met, I've talked to a lot of coaches that I've worked with um, when I was a strength coach in different places. Like, sometimes they look at like the backside. Like, if somebody has like a good backside, that means they can they can hold their ground. They're going to be explosive off the ball. Like, they have that. They just haven't been able to take it and and put it to use. There, it's there. It's there physically. But it's not it. So being able to see that now, we just teach him how to use that leverage, use them big hamstrings, them big glutes, and fire off the ball hard and fast. Now he's taking dudes to the second level and and disposing of them there. And now you have a running back that has a clear lane and can run, and run a mat truck through it. You know, when I was you know doing my offensive line thing, I used to always call talk to Coach Camp all the time. And I remember, I remember things that he would say to me when I was at IDP, like, um, I was one of them guys, like, yo, I recruit linemen that have big behinds mm-hmm. and long arms. Yeah. Long arms and big behinds because they are the two most lethal weapons to be an offensive lineman. Yeah. You know, hopefully we could get your feet somewhat coordinated and we'll make a football player out of long arms, big behind, and some coordination with your feet. Right. And we'll make a football player out of you. Right. I use them same things. I, to the day, you know, mm-hmm. like I would, you know, that's that's crazy. Um, I just want to finish up the get up the date of this story. So we, we just finished twelfth grade, y'all finally on the map a little bit. Um, did any colleges come in recruiting right away or? So um, I'll be honest, like our our coach didn't do the greatest job, and it's because I think we just got hot fast, mm-hmm. and we were just, we were we were kind of a a low team on a totem pole for so long in our conference um, that like we got hot so fast that there wasn't even time for him to really, to really learn how to, to get exposure for his kids. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so college would come, it was mostly D three schools. Uh, some D two schools came in. Um, like my, my one boy who went and played the Bucknell, now, like that was a product of his dad taking him out to rival camps, to, to different um, like Bucknell camps and, and stuff like that to get exposure. That wasn't coming from our coach. That wasn't coming from, it was all based off of. But should players expect the coach to be that hands-on with their individual? I think nowadays. That should I, be a part of their job. I think nowadays, yes. Uh, I think nowadays it's, it's such a big tool because I think recruiting now is as big as it's ever been. Um, I think now should it be their responsibility? No, but should they at least be doing the bare minimum to give the opportunity to those that are 
are able to to play at the next level. I think I think that's a big I think that's an important thing for a high school coach to be able to do. I think some of the best high school coaches know how to do just the bare minimum. Tell you they they at least know the camp schedules to be like, all right, hey, anybody who's interested, there's a camp on this date, there's a camp on this date, there's a camp on this date. Go out and we'll and we'll and we'll, we'll take you guys there. You know, I mean, boosters will pay for you guys to get there. Then you're at least getting exposure because then some of these camps like. Temple just had a camp recently um, that some of our coaches at, uh, at Kings uh, went to that there's like 17, 18 different colleges for this high school camp. So there you're getting looked at, evaluated in live action, not just off based off your off your cut together. That's your best plays, yeah. right? It's your it's you're getting to see what happens when this kid makes a bad makes a bad read. What happens when this quarterback makes a bad read? How does he bounce back? Mm-hmm. Right, you're seeing it in live action here, but I, a lot of teams go there as teams, like a lot like high schools. Like high schools yeah. will go as a unit, and they'll go like seven on seven camps. That type of thing. We didn't have that. Like we didn't go to seven on seven camps. We didn't do anything like that. We didn't go to any camps um, at all. Like no team camp, no nothing like that. Um, so, like I was saying, we had a mostly Division One, Division Three, and Division Two, and some Division Two schools come in. Uh, all of us were getting talked to about the Division Three schools, and it's the nature of the game. Division Three is all about just bringing in bodies. It's it's recruiting. It's bringing in as as many as you can, at to to fill your roster, um, because at the Division Three level, academics are much higher than athletics. You're at, you're not an athletics driven um, right. school, right? Um, whereas some of the D two schools that I was talking to, um, that most that some of us were talking to, uh, IUP was one, Millersville, um, mostly PSAC schools, local PSAC schools, um, not really anyone else in any of the other Division two conferences, like in the Northeast area, um, but PSAC mainly, um, and uh, but like all the MAC schools that were uh, so Allegheny, like all the Division three schools in the state of Pennsylvania. And surrounding states were were to us. Um, so yeah, for, and then from there, I chose to go to Delaware. Um, back when it was Delaware Valley College, now it's Delaware Valley University. Um, went to Delaware because I wanted to play. I wanted. I, I didn't want to sit. I was. I was over the sitting because I, I did it right. Wanted to play. I had the opportunity to play. I started a couple games there um, and. Put a pretty good freshman campaign together. Like played all special teams. I was good there, and I actually got like some. I started on defense a couple games. Um, I was a package player for some games. So like, to me, a freshman football player, even though it was Division three, I'm like, all right, cool. I did. I had a good freshman campaign. Right. And um, I had a tremendous. I I felt like I had tremendous upside. I was gonna grow. I was gonna learn the system more. Because even from high school to Division three. To move back to our conversation we just had, the Division Three was very different. In high school, we played three coverages. That's it. We played one coverage, two cover, one high, two high, three high. That's it. No combo coverages. No, uh, no half, zero coverages. Half man, half. Yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing like that. It was one, two, or three. Easy because we were because one we were lucky enough to be athletic enough compared to our conference in high school to run a, a, a two deep and still be able to make plays in the run game. In the run game. Right. In the run game and also still be able to make plays 
and, and like our, we have a pretty good de- defensive back coach that made us understand like leverages and stuff like that instead of route running. Um, but anyways, so I had a pretty good freshman campaign, and then got into some trouble. Uh, I ended up getting kicked out of Delaware Valley College the spring, the following, or the spring semester of my of my freshman year, for some very very dumb stuff, dumb on my part, and dumb for this is the reason why they kicked me out. I uh, I used to do graffiti, and there was this brand new train underpass that they had just built, and I tagged it, and. Uh, they had me on camera tagging it, and I was just like, all right, well, I guess I can't deny that, and they kicked me out telling me that we're making an example out of you. We don't want this to happen. We're kicking you out to show that, mind you, the next day, it was power washed off. Like, it was no longer there. Yeah. And so, to me, it was a dumb thing for me to do. It was a young, immature thing for me to do, and I took full responsibility. I did something wrong. That is an illegal thing to do. I get that. But, also, to 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 my point is, I'm an 18 year old kid, and you just you just took all my tuition for the for the year, and now I'm going to be in debt without anything to show for it because it's tough to get like to get private school um, credits to transfer. So um, I went to community college. Burnt, burnt some of my eligibility because I did full, uh, I did full um, course loads, and then uh, IUP was one of those schools when Tepper was there. Uh, that was talk, that talked to me just, just vaguely. It wasn't like, hey, we really want you here. It was just like we had conversations, and and um, I actually was, I had to walk on um, when Tepper was there, and actually didn't make the team when Tepper was there when I transferred to IUP. Which was super frustrating because I'm like, you guys were talking to me before. Now I didn't even make the team. I didn't know if like I wasn't cut out for Division Two or there wasn't a spot for me. Like it was a very confusing moment for me as an athlete um, to be like, you guys wanted me a year ago. Like not like I was your number one uh, recruit. Like, you were interested, right? Yeah, right. I, I, I had interest, and uh, and then. I come, I try out. I feel like I did okay at the tryouts. Did good at the tryouts, and uh, and I was like, all right, cool. Look at the list of for who made it and didn't make it. And I was like, huh. Well, I guess I'm not cut out for Division Two football. But I guess that's not. And then no, Tepper, no, just I don't want to. I don't want to gloss over that. I don't want to gloss over that. Um, but. What was them emotions like, you know, not not making it, and after you know that rerouting your plan to play there, mm-hmm. like how 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 was that walk home? Like how was? Oh, I was heated. I was heated at myself because because then I looked back at what I did at Del Val and I was like, you're an idiot. Like you had a chance to continue playing football while getting your degree. Why'd you put? Why'd you piss that away? Right. And then and then I was mad at at, at the coaching staff. I'm like like. They're mad at me because I didn't come here first, like that type of thing. Like that, I chose another school over them. I chose a Division three school over over them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like it was, it was a mixed bag of emotions. Like I was mad at myself. I called my parents. My parents were were uh, were disappointed that like I didn't make the team. Not disappointed in me, just that it was a disappointing time. To, like to have to to talk to their son and be like, it'll be all right, it'll be fine, yada yada yada. 
because I made the decision to go there under the impression that all I would have to do is do the walk-on tryouts and I'd be on the team. Right. Like I would just have to go through the process. Process, right? I'd have to go through the, the ringer and then I'd be on the team. Like just to say that I did the walk-on process, right? And then um, it was uh, not Megan. I was just like, all right, well, I guess I'm just gonna. You know, take my classes, do what I have to do here, and and not play football again. Like, I was done with football at that moment. And uh, I was like, all right, football is no longer in the bag for me. I'm not transferring again. I'm not burning anymore. I'm not, I'm not doing that whole process again. Because transferring alone, I transferred into IUP with only, like, three credits after a, a full semester. Like, none of my – like, one class transferred, and then – my whole spring semester was done, and then my community college, the it only they transferred in as the gen ed stuff, but like nothing towards like my major. Mm-hmm. So like I was basically starting from block zero, like right. as if I, I I wasted two years to get zero, two years of schooling, paid for two years of schooling essentially to get zero credits for three credits for, and three credits compared to how many credits you need is really nothing. And uh, so I was like, all right, I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to do what I need to do. Um, I was a biology major and focused on focused on that. And then I uh, I played in like a flag football, uh, like the flag football leagues that they would have there. And everybody would like say like, man, you're good. Like you're decent. Like you move well, you're fast. Like yada, yada, yada. I'm like, like, yeah, like I played before I came here. Yada, yada. Never really told people that like I didn't make the team here because I was, I was, that that was a shot at my ego, like saying that like I wasn't even good enough to make the team here, even though they wanted me before. And uh, the it goes back to what we were talking about. Like my determination wouldn't let me quit. There was an opportunity. Tebert left. Coach Signetti came in. I saw that opportunity as a fresh start. But coaching, right? He didn't know me. He didn't recruit me ever. He never talked to me before to just work my tail off and show that this new show this new head coach that I'm worth uh, a spot on the roster. So the next the next year came around when Sig was there and uh, it was me and do you remember Cole Kraut? No, I don't. Um, it was me and him. There was like there's like I think they ended up being like, there was 18 shots. We were the only two that made it. It was and 18 tryouts. 18 players. Or 18 players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah. 18 yeah, tryouts. Yeah. It's crazy. No, no. 18 players that like tried out. Something like that. Like something like 15 to 20, something like that. And we were the only two that made it. And like we were pumped. Like me and them actually met before that and developed like a friendship before that. But I was like, all right. Here's my shot again. Here's my shot to play again. Here's my shot to. And you don't mind me asking, like, what kind of stuff y'all be doing in the walkout, walking tryouts? It was honestly like combine stuff. It had really nothing to do with football. It was we ran a shuttle. We did, uh, we did a broad jump. I think, like combine stuff. All like, just to see if we had the hips, if we had hips to move, if we were agile, like if we could, basically, if we could measure up with what they think a division two athlete should be able to do time-wise movement-wise it, it had nothing to do with football i could have never been able to catch a football and they wouldn't have known at all until after i made the team um but 
it was like that. We ran through, did all those things. Sig was, I remember Sig specifically was there for the trials. Like he watched every single tryout, um, which is something that I respected him for because I feel like some places you go to like that, the head coach, that's not on his on his to do list. Right. Like he just delegates that to the OC, yeah, yeah, OC DC whatever. But now he was there, and uh, he immediately talked to us after the tryouts. Um, said we had good tryouts, yada yada. Um, just checked the list just to make sure. But it basically told us that we we had a good shot of making the team, and uh, ended up making the team and played. In, in 2011, and uh, we went, what, 6-5 and five that year? 7-3. 7-3. Seven seven um, and was basically just really a role player. Like, that's all I was. I played special teams. That's all I really did. But to me, I'm like, that's cool. I'm playing football again. You know what I mean? I, I get to strap on my helmet. I get, to, I get to go to practice. I get to continue playing the sport that I loved ever since I was, like, five years old. And then... Next year came around and got a little more playing time um, and did a little more things for the team and got a little more recognition from the coaches, like beyond just being like beyond just kickoff, you know what I mean? And those types of things. What was the highlight? What would you say was the highlight of your career at IUP? At IUP, playing at Winston-Salem. Even though we lost, like I think that was like one of the coolest moments. It was quarterfinals. Of, of the, of the uh, national playoffs, even though we lost that game, like I, I forced a fumble that led to a score um, that pulled us within um, one score of of time, of winning. It was late in the game, went down on kickoff and forced the fumble. And like, that was just like, I'm like, all right, I did what I had to do for this game. Like I gave us an, another chance. Like we, we scored now we're within the score. I think we lost by four that game. All we need is a touchdown. A touchdown. Was that the final four game? That was the quarterfinal game. Quarterfinal. So that was the quarterfinals would have been sixteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we and that was like I think that was the coolest thing, um, and also winning the PSAC. I think that was cool too. Like to be a part of a, a championship team was also very, uh, very cool because you see all the pieces clicked. You know what I'm saying? Like in terms of who Sig brought in. Um, what we did, um, the changes that we made on offense, that type of stuff. You know, it's crazy sitting here talking to you. You know, I came in on the Tepper, right? Right. So Tepper's, Tepper's my guy. Um, Sig Sig is good money, but right. I was recruited by a Tepper. Right. You know? Or, I don't know, a prospect of Tepper. Right. Like interest of Tepper, right? Um, but you, 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 you really like the ops for real because <laughs> – you came in on the Coach Sig. Coach Sig was trying to get a lot of the older guys out. Right. Like a lot of, a lot, like right. keeping them real, you know. Yeah. Um, he, he he stopped playing like some of my closest friends. Right. I, remember those, to, I remember those times. To play, to play his guys, mm-hmm. you know. So the, the, you, you're part of that regime. So you have like the brighter days part of it. Like mm-hmm. you have the, he came in, gave me a shot, and we won the next year. Right. Um, our, my, our experience is more... Um, he came in and changed everything. Changed everything. He wanted his own guys. He didn't like us. He didn't care about right. us like that. That's more of our story. You have a whole different perspective of that, mm-hmm. you know. And he always seemed detached from me, but maybe from everybody. But he seemed detached from our our class, mm-hmm. 
you know. Um, You're not the first person that I've heard this from. Like, me and Royale have spoke, uh, Royale Edwards, uh, you obviously know who Royale is. Um, but, like, we spoke, and, like, D. Jones. Uh, D. Jones specifically remembers, that's when, so 2011 was when he uh, joined a fraternity, and still was, still, was, still was playing in the, in spring ball when, when Sid came in, and he was like, he, I remember him seeing that, like, Royale, like, went from being one of our top players the year before to like barely even seeing the field mm-hmm. and and went from being a very dynamic player like was they used in multiple different ways like catching a jet sweep doing that type of stuff like athletic guy and I obviously only knew Royale for a year I didn't see the year before because mm-hmm. to be honest with you I didn't make the team I said I said this football team right. like, I don't want anything to do with this but um, then I saw I saw highlights of, of Royale like later once me and Royale became friends and uh, it, it like I said you're not the first person that said that to me I've heard that from multiple people that that were tempered guys that felt slighted in some in some way by Coach Signetti. Just to bring up a point, um, but even when I came to IUP, it was the same thing. The older guys were Coach Sig's dad guys. Right, right. Big right, guys. Right. Big guy guys. That's yeah. how we're big guys, guys. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, oh, you, y'all are tepper guys. So it was like, in, from start to end, I had both. I was right. part of a newer regime, and then I was a part of an old regime on the way out. And I never even put all that together to the day. Yeah. But you have a different lens when you come, to, um, come in under a coach that, you know, somewhat loyalty or somebody that can vouch for you or have your back. It's different. Uh, only thing that I would say really helped me versus maybe Royale or some of these other guys, I played for one O-line coach in my five years there. Right. Which means the person that was watching me was in every meeting mm-hmm. my whole time. Now, Royale had three, four different receiver coaches. Yeah. You know, two, three coordinators. Right. You know what I mean? So two head coaches. So his experience is just so much worse than mine. Yeah, he had more lenses on him. Yeah. Where you had two head coaches and one, one, one other one other lunch and that and luckily between those two head coaches there was one constant yeah. and that was that one O line coach your camp. But where Royale had multiple lenses, multiple head coaches, so what they saw obviously they went back when Sid came in. I'm sure he looked at previous year game film just mm-hmm. to see who he had coming, who he had still in the tank, like all these things, where he was going to fit his guys into what was already established here. Because it's not like he could come in and bring in a full 22 guys and be like, all right, this is what we're going with. It's not going to work like that. But um, watching him, I'm sure when he watched film, like he saw some things, but he felt that whatever he was bringing to the table was better for certain positions that guys felt slighted. I mean, he comes from a big-time program. I just think he was trying to get us to, you know, it's nice to have your own guys. That's, mm-hmm. that's part one. Mm-hmm. Part one is it's nice to have your own guys, build and grow with your own guys, and put your stamp on it. Like, we won with my guys. Right. It's no, no coach wants the credit of, I won with somebody else's guys. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. You know, um, so I think a part, a lot of it was that, you know, and then he had a, he had his own eye. He was a recruiting guy for Alabama. Right. You know, so having relationships with players, I guess, or maybe it's important to him. It's important to him. So I can't, I can't be mad at him. Um, I understand it now, but when I was – 22 years old, 
I felt ways about it. Yeah, I'm sure. You I'm know? sure. And and I mean, because like you also have loyalty to your guys. You know what I'm saying? Like you're loyal to to your boys way out. And like so when you see them down, you're like, Oh, you think this guy's better than my boy? Like my boy did this, my boy scored X amount of touchdowns, had so many yards. Like so there's different dynamics to that where you have loyalty to coach, but you also have loyalty to your teammates who put their hand in the dirt right next to you every single play. You wanna know what a gym a, a gym that comes in stuff like this, like coaches, like you said, that lens, right? So you bring a guy in, I don't know, like D Wayne. Like D Wayne's my guy. Really don't remember specifics about any of it. But say he came in on a temper, which he probably did. Or he did. I don't know. He came in he came in after me. Okay, he came in after you. Yeah. But say what about Bass? Bass came in was Bass also came in after me. Okay. So say say No no no, he came in that same year. The same year as me. Bass. Say say one of them guys could mm-hmm. Both of them end up being great players out here, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't get a chance to watch, but I right. they end up both being great players. Mm-hmm. Say they were Tupper guys, but under Tupper, they were young. They weren't ready. They made some type of bonehead mistake, and now they're kind of, say they were blackballed or put on the shelf by coaching staff. Yeah, by Tupper staff. By Tupper staff. Right. And then Sid comes in, and be like, yo, why he not playing? I don't get it. Right. And then out of nowhere, you know. D-Lane blossoms to an all-region, mm-hmm. damn near all-American player, bats right. his all-conference. Right. They're like, these guys are on the team the whole time. Like, why weren't they playing? Mm-hmm. You know, you need that change of hands sometimes. That really benefits guys. Oh, and, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It, there, there's, it's definitely a double-edged sword. Definitely. Like, some guys are going to get hurt by this new by this new regime, and some guys are going to get an opportunity because of this new regime because D-Lane – Himself was a safety, but the style of defense that we played, he he was a long, lanky linebacker that could run with with uh, with slot receivers that type of thing because he had that background. Now in that in that new system and that defensive system that that Sig wanted to instill um, with Coach Tort, he fits it. He fits the mold a little bit better, mm-hmm. and he was given that opportunity because D Lane is a long, lanky dude that mm-hmm. has some size, some strength, has some speed. I won't credit him with speed um, <laughs> ever in my life, but he has some speed. Mm-hmm. Um, no hips though, no hips. But that's that's more me, me D Lane type thing. But anyways, he fits. He fit that. He fit that scheme. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that's also that's also a great point. Is that some guys do benefit from a new regime coming through because. They're coming in with an unbiased view on a player. They're coming in and just literally looking at the 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 measurables, the and some of the intangibles. Like, oh, you can run pretty fast. It's like it's like being in a relationship. Like you're in a new relationship, and it's like a fresh start. It's no emotion there, no scar tissue. Right. Cover up, and that's exactly what it is. You know, these are parts of sports that nobody knows. Like, he not playing because he's this say X Y and Z receiver. You know, player he has a, he smoke weed. Right. Or this guy's always uneligible and we're scared to invest in him. Mm-hmm. Or this guy, you know, he gets in fights at bars and he mm-hmm. fights the police. And these are all the reasons why these guys are not playing for real, for real. You know, right. coaches are holding them accountable. They're in trouble with the school, the university, X, Y, Z. Right. And they can't play. But when a new guy come in, he ain't thinking about what you did last week. You know how you're in a relationship? You be like, yo, don't bring up no old mess. Right. They're not bringing up no old mess. They're right. dealing with here and now. Right. Here and now, you're the better football player. Hey, we're going to plug you in and play linebacker. Until you screw up again. Until you screw up again. Right. Right. Now, if you never do, then all the things that you did previously mean nothing to this new coaching staff. Absolutely. Yeah. 
just uh, carrying on, I, I really want to get into your professional career now. Okay. Um, so after IGP, and once you graduated, what did you start to do? So I took a job immediately after I graduated at National Speed and Strength Academy, like a private sector gym, worked with some young kids, but then I worked with a couple uh, like professional baseball players, that type of thing. Uh, it was a place outside of um, Pittsburgh. Uh, private sector gym, we worked on, on speed development, some strengthening type stuff, but it was my first taste into, after being, so I changed my major from biology to exercise science. Being an exercise science major is my first taste of being. What made you do that, by the way? Um, well, when I was a biology major, I was a biology major, uh, education, secondary education. Uh, I love biology. I love biology. I love the human body. I love the how intricate and 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 intense and and also in the same breath how simple the human body is and and most organisms. Um, but I hated the teaching part of it. Mm. I hated what they what they had to make the, the loops I had to go through to say, oh, you're okay to be a teacher. No, no, I have my way of teaching. I don't have to teach it the way you want me to teach it. Right. I connect on this level. I connect on that level. I don't need to to have this portfolio that says that I can I can create X, Y, and Z type of lesson plan. While lesson plans are obviously important. My lesson plans, the way I, I structured things, is was completely different. The way my viewpoint on it was was completely different than what I was being taught. So when I changed, when I wanted to remove myself from the secondary education thing, I was just like, all right, the perfect fit is exercise science because that's dealing with the human body, not necessarily on on a, a such a deep level as biology is, but more on the on the nose, more on the surface level mm-hmm. of of human biology. Um, and it kind of fit what I, what, what, like I said earlier, like when I was in high school, like I was always in the weight room, like it fit things that I already enjoyed doing. Right. I was already, already the guy that liked to work out. Like, so it kind of fit, it felt like the right fit. So that's why I changed. And then, so when I graduated, I had the opportunity to work there, made some good money there. Um, but who were some of the athletes you said you worked with professional so, baseball players? Uh, Max McDowell, he plays for the Brewers, uh, JJ, uh, Matajevic. He plays for who did he get picked up by? He played for Arizona um, University or University of Arizona. Um, I forget who he got picked up by. Um, and then there were a couple of it, and then there was a lot of like bigger name like uh, college guys that we worked with. I worked with with um, some guys that went to Temple, some guys that went to out of, out of high school. So like I was able to be around. Younger kids and help develop younger kids, but I still got that that niche uh, training of working with high level athletes, which is really what I wanted to do: is work with high level athletes, college capable right. athletes. Um, so from there, we opened up another location, a couple more, uh, uh, like thirty minutes down the road. And when we opened up the new location, one of my one of my still to this day one of my one of my best friends. He was the director over there, and I was basically his assistant director over there. And we ran our own show. We did things a little differently. We ran our own show because we had a different viewpoint than the person who owned the place of how to do some things. And we saw a lot of success. We saw a high amount of success. Um, I worked with a lot of teams that, um, a lot of teams in the local area and developed their football teams, that type of stuff, basketball teams, softball teams. Um, and from there, um, 
I was offered the opportunity to go back to school to be a GA. So when I was at Saint, when I was at IUP, I did my internship just because to graduate you have to do an internship. Right. So I did my internship, and um, when I did my internship, I was at St. Francis University, which was like forty five minutes up the road from right. Indiana. Um, we did. Uh, I met the strength coach there. I developed a good relationship with him. He saw that I wanted to do this. That like that strength conditioning was something that was in my blood. Like I I I enjoyed coaching. I enjoyed that type of stuff. So after a year and a half of being at NSSA, I get a phone call. The GA was graduating, and he's like, "It's yours if you want it. You just gotta you gotta apply and take classes, do that whole thing. The school's paid for, master's degrees paid for." Um, you gotta take X amount of credits per semester, yada yada yada. I'm like, cool, done. I didn't go back to graduate school to get my master's. And like that wasn't why I went back. My way my reason why I went back was to have my opportunity in collegiate strength conditioning. The master's was just a bonus. It was right. just a, it was just an extra thing that came as a part of it. Um so I was there for a year and a half, which is quicker than what most most GAs are two in strength conditioning are two years. I just finished my degree a little quicker because I wanted to get to making money. I was very naive in my coaching process, thought like thought process of the oh, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a, a making money as a coach any day now. Like it's gonna happen, it's gonna pop. Um, so there for a year and a half, really work with, I work with um, uh, the so we broke the football team up into three into three like skills, mid skills, and bigs. Each of us had. One of those, I had the mid skills, um, which included the quarterbacks and stuff, and the and the specialists. And then I also had like um, I had sprinters, jumpers, uh, golf, men's women's golf, men's women's tennis, bowling. Um, that was it for my sports. And uh, I developed my coaching. I developed how I programmed strength conditioning, all the stuff, what I did develop it all there because I was lucky enough to have a head guy that was very, very coach first um, priority in terms of like, he wanted me to be on the floor. He wanted me to coach. He wanted me to develop my coaching voice, develop my coaching mannerisms, develop the way I wanted to address teams and how to address teams, how not to address teams, learn that on the fly. He wasn't really a, here's how you should do it. This is the way I want you to do it. He kind of let me develop my own way of doing things, which I'm extremely grateful for. Coach Weber is one of my mentors. Um, he's somebody I still stay in contact with to this day. Um, about even if I'm if I write a new style of program and I send it to him and I say, "Hey, check this out for me. Give me give me some feedback if you don't mind. Like whenever you have some free time, yada yada." Um, so very very grateful for my opportunity there. It was my first step into collegiate strength and conditioning, um, and. It was, it's the the foundation of everything that I do now um, in terms of the way it works in the college sector versus the private sector. Then from there, I uh, like I said, I finished up in a year and a half thinking like, all right, cool. Just got to do another little internship and then I'll, and then I'll get hired as, a full, as like a full-time guy making some money. So Coach Cox, who's now at Baylor, um, Coach Cox was at Villanova University. I... Uh, was accepted into his internship internship program. His internship program to be accepted was a strenuous process just to get accepted as an intern. 
there was I had to write like a paper every month leading up to it. Like had to do uh, X, Y, and Z type of projects, like just to be an intern. Um, and then I get there, I start helping out a little bit, and then he gets offered a job at Baylor. He'd be a fool to not take it. Baylor's Baylor. Right. Like Baylor football, just Baylor football. Mm-hmm. And um, he leaves, so that kind of left me in the dust a little bit. I'm like, do I stay here? They didn't even know who they were bringing in as a new strength coach. The guys that were going to run it were the current GAs. I was like, do I really want to stay with the current GAs or do I want to be under a guy who solidified and can help me in my career? Right. right. Um, <clears throat> the GAs didn't have as much connection as Coach Cox did. Coach Cox was a big connection in the strength and conditioning world. He knows a lot of guys. Um, and learning from him was going to be an extreme benefit. And uh, and the uh, opportunity arose for me to go to Temple and work under Coach Feely. He came in as a new strength coach for uh, Coach Collins. And coach Collins was at Temple. And I learned so much from him. And he was... I learned about what it takes emotionally as a strength coach. Like the X's and O's of strength and conditioning, everyone can do. But coaching and 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 getting buy-in and showing your athletes you care was his number one priority. He wanted to make sure that every single athlete he worked with, every football guy he worked with, knows that he can he can they can call on him at any hour of the day. And they'll, he'll talk to him. I got I got screamed at one time because he was in a meeting with a player in his office, and I was just knocking on the door to ask him a question. He answered my question, shut the door, and after he finished the meeting, he called me into his office, and he's like, don't you ever interrupt me when I'm in a meeting with a player. Never, ever, ever. I will always give the athlete my time uninterrupted. I, didn't, I never got that from anywhere else I'd been, and... I didn't see the value in it until he, until he like basically just tore me a new asshole and said like, here's why I do it because these guys need to know they're my number one priority right. because if they don't know that they're not going to run through a wall for me if I ask them to. So, um, he was a player's strength coach. I saw that and I loved it. And there was a lot of things that he did that I adapted into what I was already doing in my foundation. And, uh, I was there for a semester, spring semester. I was asked actually to be a GA there. Turned it down because to me, I didn't want to get another master's degree. Looking back on it, would it have changed things? Potentially, because the guy that ended up getting the GA because I didn't take it is now a strength coach at Georgia Tech. And yeah. Yeah. So I don't like looking at things that way, like if ands and buts, but like, Looking back on it, if I were taking that, could I be at a different point in my life? Yeah, but would I have a son right now? Maybe not. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's there's a lot of if ands and buts to like where I'm at right now. I'm super happy with. Uh, but I turned it down in the moment because I didn't want another master's because I getting my master's in the first place was something that wasn't even a priority of mine. Right. Um. So I turned that down and I ended up leaving Temple because I was getting married and we wanted to have a family. So I actually left strength conditioning as a whole and did a job, excuse me, I did a job uh, um, at Brentag. I worked, I was a a inventory control specialist. I just looked at inventory. The the place was a chemical 
warehouse, like chemical sales, like selling chemicals to different companies, buying chemicals. Um, worked a desk job for a little over a year. And when I say I hated my life, I hated my life. I was miserable. I hated everything I was doing. Not because I hated the job, but because it wasn't what I loved doing. Like right. I hated the fact that I was working in a cubicle and having to wear um, like a, a business casual every day. Like this, like a big reason why I chose strength and conditioning is because this is my attire. I'm comfy all the time. Right. I'm in sweats or shorts with, with my gear on. I'm cool. Um, but I hated what I did. I was like, this isn't me. I got to a point where I was, I was very depressed. Like I was looking at things like I'm, I got, like I failed. Like I wasn't, I wasn't all my work that I put in at every single place I've been to this point was for nothing. Mm. Like it was, it was a very, very like gut checking moment in my life. And I actually, I got a phone call and boom, it was on my plate. I got a phone call from Kings where I'm at now looking for first time ever strength coach at the university. So that, that in itself is a hurdle. Mm-hmm. And being my first strength job in over a year is another hurdle. And being a first-time head strength coach alone is a hurdle. So put all those three things together, I'm like, I'm in. Like, I don't care. It's me doing what I want to do. I love what I do every single day. And I wanted to get back to that. I wanted to get back to uh, something I enjoyed. And uh, now I'm at Kings. And... It's been a great first year. Um, it was, there's a building, pro- it's, it's a learning curve on both ends. So like, like I said, like it's my first time ever being a head guy. So knowing the intricacies of being a head guy, like there's more to it than just the X's and the O's. Do you have interns or GAs? Or- so I'm looking to get a GA. I'm hoping they approve one, but I did have interns. Um, now the interns are exercise science majors that have an interest in strength and conditioning. So that's varies. That can vary from year to year. Like last year, I ended up having four, which was great. But this year, I can only have one. Like I don't know who they'll be until you can't put a responsibility on them because they come and go. Right. Exactly. Um. And just by laws of the NCAA, I can't put any responsibilities on them because you have to have certification and do certain things. Right. But on the other side of things, so I'm learning how to be a head guy. On the other side of things. The university, the athletics program, is learning what a program with a strength conditioning side to it means. Like what that means for the athletics program, what that means for your sport, what that means for gym time, what that means for everything. Like there's a learning curve on both ends to make <clears throat> that we both have to like work together to make them un- to make each other understand like how our dynamic needs to be between me and sport coaches, me and athletics, me and admissions, me and the, the, the college itself. Facilities. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Where I fit and how and how I have to move within that. Um, and it's been a challenge, but it's been a rewarding challenge because already in my first year, I've seen a lot of growth personally and at the college. Um, we brought in new platforms, new bars. Things are totally different. Because I also... The space that I use is shared by the entire student body. And so like I have my athletes come in during certain hours, but the rest of the gym is being used by by the rest of the student body, faculty, staff, whatever. Um, so that that's another hurdle that I've had to learn how to navigate. Um, and it's a lot a lot of these three places have that same hurdle. 
And that's a D3 thing. That they don't have a place just for the athletes. athletes. Right. Because, like we said earlier, D3 academics is is priority. Mm-hmm. Athletics, while at all schools, athletics should fall second to a- academics, some guys didn't go to, go to that school for their academics. They went there because they're the best football player in this region. You know what I mean? And, and they were offered a full-ride scholarship. Their full-ride scholarship didn't become because of their grades. They, they had good enough grades to be able to apply to that school, but there's four-round scholarships coming directly from the football program. Right. So here it's opposite. It's it's A lot of guys have scholarships, academic scholarships, and that's the only reason they can afford to go to these schools because a lot of them are private. A lot of D3 schools are private schools that are a lot higher tuition than our state schools. Um, and the, the dynamic that I, I've had to work with and in there, um, like I'm always every year. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and get a, a an athletics weight room built. There are D three schools that have that, but there are D three schools that might have on the side of the campus that writes the checks, might have a guy there that sees the benefit in, in having one in terms of recruitment, in terms of bringing just kids to the school in general, in terms of less traffic in the weight room, which turns kids away, because if if I'm in there, I'm yelling, I'm hollering, I'm getting guys going. Some 18, 19-year-old kid that never played sports in their life might not want to hear that. They might just go to the gym just to ride the bike, you know what I mean, or whatever the case may be. That they, they, they don't want to hear that. It's but, intimidating. Right. Yeah. It can be. Yeah. And uh, it's been, it's been like I said, there's been a lot of growth. Like we've, we've rearranged things multiple times, try to be the best fit for the area. Um, I've had my ups and downs already in this first year. I've had people call for my job to get, like, for me to get fired from my job, essentially. Wow. Um, because, as with most people, they're resistant to change. So what I was doing there was very different than what it used to be. I was holding people accountable, not just my athletes, but people in the gym. Like when I first got there, not one dumbbell matched. Like in terms of like they had a twenty next to a twenty, a twenty-five next to a twenty-five. Mm-hmm. Like a twenty-five was over here, another twenty-five was here, a thirty-five was here, a thirty-five was there, forty-five. Like none of them matched. I walked into this weight room, I had an aneurysm. Like I'm like, how how do you not put your weights back to where they're supposed to be? Plates are all over because no one was focused enforcing on enforcing that. Right, no one was enforcing it. No one was like my office is now in there. Like the weight room is an extension of my office. I take pride in the weight room looking good. Mm-hmm. It's, my, it's where I'm at. Yeah. And we, uh, like the racks, we have double-sided racks. They were, they were pushed up against the wall. So we have double-sided racks that you can only use one side, one side of, which did make also mind-boggling to me. But again, no one has my, I say this very, very loosely, expertise in terms of, of what we have that when you pull these out, now you have Five, instead of five racks, you have ten. Now you can you've just created more space for people to use these things. Um, so just in that, I've gotten uh, so much pushback in telling kids like, "Hey, put your weights away." Like I've kicked kids out that are like, "I pay, I pay to go to school here, yada yada yada," and I'm like, "You pay to go to Planet Fitness, but you can still get kicked out if you don't follow the rules." Like, right. Like, it's not a right, it's a privilege. Like, you have the privilege to be in the weight room and use this space, treat it correctly, or you will be asked to leave. Because of that, oh, and also, 
I gave priority to athletes when I had, so like I would put a schedule up every week. The schedule would tell people when my teams were coming in for the week. The only time I, I prioritized my athletes was when they were supposed to be in there and I would take just enough racks that I needed. So if I had a team of 12, I wouldn't take all the racks because I don't need all the racks for 12 people. When I have a team of 30, I need all the racks. Mm. So I had a baseball team coming in who had like 35, something like that. And this kid came over, he's about to use the platform. I'm like, sorry, man, you can't use this because I'm gonna have a whole team coming in here in, in literally like five minutes. They're finishing up their warm up and they're gonna be in here. And he was just like, he was just like, I pay to go to school here too. I go, yeah, but I send out the schedule for a reason. If you don't want to be in here when the teams are in here, there's open spaces in the day that no teams are in here. Come during that time. He reported you? He went straight to the president of the university. Wrote a very, very long letter. In that letter, basically came at me saying that I was a, a domineering person that didn't live the lifestyle that Kings tries to represent, that um, that is only prioritizing athletes. Came at my athletes next saying... I would understand if they were scholarship athletes, but they're not scholarship athletes. And I'm like, I don't care if they're scholarship athletes or not. They're doing more work than probably what you are right now because they're choosing to play whatever sport they're playing on top of keeping their grades up. They're doing a lot more than you are right now. And the fact that they're doing that without scholarship is just a credit to them. Like that they love the game that they play so much that they're willing to do it for no money. They're willing to do it to, to, um, just because they love playing the game, right? And they wanted to continue playing while they got their degree. And it's coming up people and, and basically just, just attacking me as a person. Like we have Kings, one of one of our one of our slogans is we don't we teach kids um, not how to live or I forget how it goes exactly, but essentially he was saying that I wasn't following that slogan slogan. Like that I was I was doing the opposite of. I'm like, actually, I'm teaching you that life doesn't always give you what you want. Mm-hmm. Like, you may have had privileges before, but when you get out in the real world, it doesn't matter. Like, if people say no, they say no. And you don't get a chance to throw a tantrum and, and get your way anymore. Like, it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'm like, so really, I'm actually teaching you that that this is how life goes. Like, like you don't always get what you want when you want it. And you might have to reschedule. You might have to adjust. You might have to pivot. You might have to do certain things in your life because in that moment, it, it's not going to work out. So anyways, he writes this long letter that sends it to the sends it to the, uh, the president of the university and sends it to my supervisor and just says FYI. And she reads it. She sends it. She pulls me to office and she says, I want to send this. Excuse me. I want to send this to you. Not because I believe it or anything like that, because I want you to see what they're saying. I, would, I, I think if somebody's talking about you, you have a right to see what they're saying about right. you. And she was just like, I know for a fact that this isn't you. You have, She has seen conflicts that I've had already this year that I've been on like the good side of the conflict in terms of how I, how I reacted to the conflict. Right. And she's like, I know this isn't you. Um, and she actually reached out to the student. She emailed me and said, I'm not allowed to reach out to the student. Uh, and I think for good reason, because I might have gotten heated, yeah. said some things I didn't mean, not did not that I didn't mean, but like said some things that would have made me look like the bad guy in the situation. 
She emails the kid back and says, I'm sorry you feel this way, uh, but I'm open to having a meeting. I will call I will call Coach Kerstetter in as well. We can sit down and have an open discussion. Not a peep. Nothing. Not even an email back from the kid. Like He just wanted to complain just to complain, right? And um, anyway, so like that's been some of the problems that I've seen. But on the flip side of things, my, my boss's boss, who is the VP of, of Student Affairs, she loves me because I'm holding kids accountable. I'm making sure the weight room is good because if board members walk through, if donors walk through, if, if recruitment, if recruit, uh, if if uh, potential recruits come through, it looks good. Yeah. It's not it's not all over the place. It's not trash anymore. It, everything looks like it's in place all at all times. Right. And um, so she's like, "You're doing the right things. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep trying to keep kids accountable." Like the first year wasn't the greatest in terms of my high expectations, yeah. but in terms of where it used to be, you moved it forward. So much more forward. Like I've had people come up to me and they're like, some of the things you do, like we're not like I was like, is it sucks that we can't be in here at certain times or we can't work on the platforms at certain times. But all in all, like this place looks ten times better than it ever looked. And there's seniors that have seen it when it was at its worst right. and now seeing it the last at the last chance. Uh, um I guess last question or two. Talk about competing. You know, we didn't touch on that. Um, oh, my personal company? Uh, yeah, personal uh, computing, yeah. So it kind of cycles into my philosophy and strength and conditioning. Uh, I use Olympic weightlifting as uh, like clean, snatch, jerk, all that stuff as as ways of producing force um, in, that translates to football, like jumping high. If you, can, if you can squat pretty high and you can take clean and move a lot of weight, you're going to be explosive. Um, so... Those Olympic lifts are like my bread and butter when it comes to when I when I work with my athletes, but I also compete in Olympic weightlifting as well. Um, I'm a national qualifier at 83 kilos, which is like roughly 183 pounds. Um, my best clean and jerk is 365 pounds, uh, and my best snatch is 280 85 pounds, something like that. And um, that's like that's like that's that's me. You know what I mean? That's like what I do to kind of get away from coaching and like just be able to put my headphones in and like some of my athletes know they walk into the weight room and I have my headphones in it, unless it's super important. It, and it, yeah. Let me, let me get my hour to myself for the day because I need that hour, my, that time to decompress that time to, to just have my moment to be within my own head and, and, and not be focused on, programming not be focused on on administrative duties not to be focused on on athletes you know what i mean um but i think life is all about balance like as much as i love my athletes and i love what i do i need to take myself away from it sometimes because and and in those moments when i'm with my family like i try as hard as i can not to bring work home as much as i can like if i have a if i have something going on that i want to ask my wife her opinion on i'll bring it home like that type of stuff but I try not to do work at home. I try not to do anything unless it's absolutely me being I didn't have enough time to do it in the day. But if I didn't have enough time to do it in the day, it's mostly because I didn't manage my time properly. Mm. Um, which is one of my big things that I talk to my athletes about. They're like, Coach, I'm going to be late to the lift. Why? Because I was doing homework. Why, why did you do homework last night? Why did you do homework later today? Why don't you manage your time better? We all have 24 hours in a day. It's how you use it is, is what's going to make you better or worse. Did you get 1% better today or did you get 1% worse? So Olympic lifting is 
the time of my day that I, that I etch out to make sure that it's my time, it's my me time. Like my wife knows that if I don't text her back, I'm probably lifting, I'm probably doing my thing because most of the time I'm gonna text her back right away. But in that moment, it's just it, I'm selfish, and that's my hour to be selfish. That's my hour to be in my own head and just talking to myself and. Competing is a rush. Like I've been able to travel to California to compete um, all over PA. I was I, I Nashville this year. I didn't go to it. Was in Nashville, um, which would have been cool to go to. But um, competing is a is a thrill. Like you get to see some strong, strong people. Like people think I'm strong, and I think I am strong. But there's some real strong people out there that that blow me out of the water, same weight class and everything, but they blow me out the water because they're so technically sound or whatever the case may be, um, or they've been training longer or they have a great coach, um, that watches everything they do. And it competing in me is my way of being an athlete still. Like I play pick up basketball. I play, I'll, I'll mess around with the guys or whatever. I'll football field. I'll do a one-on-one or something like that. But like, my chance to compete still and still remain an athlete and be a competitor and keep that competitive spirit alive um, in outside of, of, of work is I get a chance to go against some of the strongest guys in, in the nation and say, I can, I can lift more than you can lift. Yeah. Wow. I'm trying to be a little bit. Got my first gun, I thought it was a shooter.